you have a Bible with you, open up to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3 in verse 16. We're going to be looking at a number of selected verses this morning as we're going to be um, discovering what uh, the Lord wants us to learn this last Sunday of this year and as we begin the next year. So I've entitled the sermon as 2020, the year of the Bible, 2020 year of the Bible. And we'll start with 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, and then we'll look at a lot of different texts throughout our time together this morning. Here's what we read the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy. He says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning, and we thank you that you are our king. We thank you that you are the Lord of all. We thank you for giving us your word, and I pray that as we wrap up this year and as we move into the next, that you would show us the infinite value of Scripture that it might transform our hearts and change our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think you would agree with me when I say that the Bible is the most important book ever written. It is an eyewitness account to the historical events which have shaped we live. Without the Bible, the world would be a completely different place. It's not too much to say that the events recorded in the Bible have made the world what it is today. This book is foundational to just about everything mankind will ever know or accomplish. It has directly led to massive undertakings of goodwill and service. Because of this book, great projects have been undertaken. Hospitals have been built. Multitudes have been fed and clothed and orphanages have been founded. The Bible has literally transformed the world. It would be impossible to claim to be an educated person in today's society without having at least some familiarity with the events contained in the Bible. Millions of people around the world read portions of this book every single day. It is the most published and printed book in the history of the world. It has been printed in just about every known language, and each year, it's the world's best-selling book. Collectors of rare books treasure the Bible in every form. The Bible was the first book to ever be put to the printing press. The man who first printed it, Johannes Gutenberg, was recently voted as the most important man to have lived in the last 1,000 years. A good number of museums exist today which are dedicated solely to this very book and the events contained within it. The Bible is available in every corner of the globe, even where it is illegal to own or read this book. It is available in every electronic format imaginable and also in hundreds of apps on your phone. You can find the entire Bible online for free. Famous actors and sports stars regularly refer to the Bible. It was quoted by William Shakespeare many times in his writings. The Bible has been praised, but it has also been cursed, restricted, banned, desecrated, and burned. Some have tried to eliminate it. All who have tried have failed. People have suffered exquisite tortures, 
loss of freedoms, and even their lives for printing and preaching from the Bible. This book is simultaneously hated and loved. Once read, it would be impossible to be indifferent to it, for its claims are monumental and beyond exaggerating. It provokes a strong response, either a positive one where you love it or a negative one to where you hate it. And it was meant to be that way by design. God did not give us the Bible as the least common denominator to be agreed upon by all men and all cultures. It is so controversial that wars have been fought over its interpretation. Governments have been toppled on account of it. And kings have been deposed because of holding on to the truth of the Bible. Worldwide organizations and associations have been formed because of this book and its message, many of them existing for centuries. One massive effort going on right now is called Together 2020. This gathering is being planned as we speak for Saturday, June the 20th, 2020, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., There are expectations of over 200,000 people to be in attendance as the whole gathering is a celebration around the Bible. International mission leaders, well-known pastors, and Bible translators are designating 2020 as a global year of the Bible. Organizers of this event hope that this effort will be a catalyst for a second reformation. I mean, people are growing up right beneath our noses in America today who are really illiterate of the teaching of the Bible. There are six goals to the 2020 Year of the Bible movement. They are to pray, translate, publish, distribute, educate, and motivate people to engage in God's Word. Well, I don't know about you, but I can get behind that. I'm thankful for a movement like that. What an incredible focus. What a a great emphasis engaging the Bible in 2020. But let me be crystal clear to you this morning. My goal for you as a church is to engage God through His Word. You can't know God without knowing Him through the Scriptures. And you cannot have a relationship with God outside of the Bible. And yet we don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. We worship God's Son, Jesus Christ, who alone can save us from our sins. It's not enough just to get together to celebrate the Bible. We want to celebrate Jesus Christ as Lord over all. And only by repenting and believing in Him can one have eternal life. To say it another way, the depth of your relationship with God this year will be determined by the depth of your Bible reading, study, and meditation that you take part in. It is impossible to say that your relationship with God is better than it has ever been when your time in the Word is hit or miss. If you love God with all of your heart, And with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength, you will show it by spending time with him through his words. And yet, if we're not careful, we'll be deceived by the response that we so often give, I don't 
have time. Corey Ten Boom often remarked, if the devil cannot make us bad, he will make us busy. And isn't that the truth? The lie that we are too busy to spend time in the Word of God comes directly from the enemy of your soul. Why don't we just be honest and say, it's just not a priority. Not a priority for me to spend that kind of time in the Word of God. I think there's a huge lack of motivation in the lives of people today to study the Word of God. And so my goal on this last Sunday of this decade is to prepare you for 2020. And the best way I know how to prepare you for 2020 is to motivate you to get into God's Word today, tomorrow, in year 2020, and for the rest of your life. This morning, I want to give you five truths about the Bible that ought to make you want to dig into God's Word like never before. Are you ready? Five truths about the Bible. Number one, the Bible is from God. Now, we know that, but I want to define it a little bit more in depth, and we've seen it already in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. Your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, is the Bible is inspired. We read here in 2 Timothy 3, 16 that all Scripture is breathed out by God. In some translations, they use the word inspired. All Scripture is inspired by God. Literally, it's breathed out. It's the breath of God. And in this verse, Paul tells us what the Bible is. He tells us that it's God's very words. He tells us all about the nature of Scripture. Theologians call this truth about the inspiration of Scripture as the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture. The word plenary means all of it, every single word. Jesus talks about every jot and every tittle will be uh, fulfilled in the Scripture, all of it. It's plenary. Every single part of the Bible is God's Word. It's verbal, meaning the very words of the Bible, that God chose these very words that were inspired by Him. The word inspiration, again, is God-breathed. It is given to us by God Himself, not by an angel, not by a person who said they saw a vision, not by a committee of religious scholars. It was given to us by God. Just like in creation, God spoke the world into being, God also spoke His Word into being by His very breath. And so we believe that the Bible is inspired by God, not by man. Second Timothy tells us what the Bible is. It's God's inspired Word, and it tells us, this isn't the next blank, but just a little bit more on this inspiration uh, blank, is it tells us a little bit more about what the Bible does. So it tells us what the Bible is, it's God's inspired word, and 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us what the Bible does. The Bible shows us the way of godliness. The Bible was given not only so that we can know God and His Son, Jesus Christ, but God's word was also given so that we can live it out. The word of God is to bring about life change, teaching you, reproving you, correcting you, and training you. And I want to come back to those four descriptors under our next second heading. So again, we're talking about what is the Bible? It's God's inspired word. What does the Bible do? It teaches us about God and about how we're to live. And 2 Timothy 3.16 also tells us what the Bible is for. 
Look at verse 17. It's for completing you that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. It is for completing the man of God and equipping him for every good work. The Bible is to complete us in our hearts and in our minds. The Bible is to be what we look for, for our affirmation and our direction. The Bible is to furnish us with everything we need for service to our great God. The Bible makes us ready to walk in obedience to Christ and to all of his teaching. The Bible is better than any secular philosophy. It's better than any modern psychology. It's better than any cognitive behavioral therapy. The Bible produces for the Christian real change. It produces real wisdom in you. It produces in you real power to live life to the fullest. That's all because it's the Word of God. It's inspired. It changes a man. It changes a woman. It brightens your day. It changes what you do on any given day when you're spending time in the Word of God. And not only is the Word of God inspired, but it is also, your next blank is now, inerrant. The Bible is inerrant. Again, a big theological word. We talk about the inerrancy of Scripture. It simply means that it is without error. It is without error. Scripture in its original manuscript and properly understood does not affirm anything that would contradict the truth. Here's how Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 and 6 says it. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So the Bible is saying it's true. And every man or woman who speaks against the word of God is in error, not God. God's never in error, which means his word is never in error. According to Charles Feinberg, who writes a lot on the inerrancy of scripture, he writes this, quote, inerrancy means that when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true. In everything that they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with social, physical, or life sciences, close quote. There's nothing untrue. You will never find something in the Bible that contradicts true science. You will never find something in the Bible that contradicts history. You will never find something in the Bible that would contradict any truth that exists in our world. Wayne Grudem states, quote, the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Let me give you some facts about the Bible. These are some fun facts that I'm sure you know maybe a lot of these, but I just love the fact that the Bible was written over 1,500 years, which means not just one person can dominate the theme of the Bible because nobody lives that long. So that's proof to the fact that God himself is its author. It was written in three different continents, Europe, Africa, and in parts of Asia. They're in the Middle East. It's written in three different languages, mostly Hebrew and Greek, and there's some Aramaic in the book of Daniel, as well as some of the words of the lips from the lips of Jesus. It has over 40 different authors. There's 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, and yet there's only one God who says the same thing. 
through all of these different ways, using different people to record what he's given us as he has inspired these words in the Bible. The Bible was considered inspired or authoritative as soon it was written, as it was written down. It's not like it needed time later in church history is what some scholars will tell you is that somehow it wasn't really scripture until uh, the Council of Nicaea in 325 or the Council of Carthage in 397. But I'm here to tell you that the Bible was inspired by God as soon as it was written down. And we have hundreds of Hebrew manuscripts that all tell us what the story of the Old Testament is, hundreds of them. We have thousands of Greek manuscripts. In fact, we have over 5,600 Greek manuscripts. And these are all telling us the same thing. They're telling us what the Word of God really says. The next ancient book that is a distant second would be Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad talks a little bit of the Trojan War, dates back to 700 BC. And do you know how many original manuscripts there are of the Iliad? There are exactly, to date, found 643. Now, that may sound like a lot, 643. That's a pretty good number. But remember, in the New Testament, we have 5,600, which means we have 5,000 more copies of the New Testament than we do of any other book. The Old Testament was authorized by the prophets who wrote it, and then it was also canonized by Jesus Christ himself, as he regularly quotes in the New Testament, as it is written, as it is written, as it is written, and he quotes again and again and again from the Old Testament. The New Testament was authorized by the apostles who wrote it, even though there was some confirmation by the Council of Carthage in 397, I'm letting you know that it was already scripture the moment it was written down. The New Testament was written by the apostles and their close associates, and it was accepted by the early church as scripture because of these three simple rules. Number one, authorship. It had to be written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle. Secondly, consistency. It was largely accepted by the first century church. So it was accepted by the entire church, all the churches that were existent at that time. It was completely accepted. No argument about any portion of it. And then third, by its accuracy. So again, the test of canonicity is authorship, consistency, and accuracy, meaning that it taught the same truth as orthodoxy in the Old Testament and in the New Testament alike. Now, there are other books that were written that some claim that belong in the Bible. For example, some would claim that the Gospel of Thomas, which was written around the same time, maybe it should be in the canon. Some people say, well, how do we know that's just 66 books? I mean, you're saying it's 39 of the old, 27 of the, of the new, but who made those decisions? I'm letting you know that God made those decisions by writing those books, and there was never really any serious argument because any book that didn't pass those tests of canonicity wasn't even close to being included in the Bible like the Gospel of Thomas. In fact, the Gospel of Thomas was deemed heretical. It has been deemed by the early church as inauthentic, and it was probably not even written by the Thomas of the Bible because of its later date. It's completely inconsistent with the rest of the New Testament, and it doesn't take a scholar to figure that out. Let me give you a quote from the Gospel of Thomas, and you tell me what you think. You ready? Here's a quote from the Gospel of Thomas. Simon Peter said to them, 
make Mary leave us, for females do not deserve life. Jesus said, look, I will guide her to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every female who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Close quote. What do you think? You guys want to put the gospel Thomas in? Who says, let's put it in? Who says it's out? You better all give me a thumbs down, all right? I don't want any of you male chauvinists out there being like, yeah, I kind of like that. No, it's out because it's not even close. Now, I'm just trying to help you understand it's not like it was like sitting on the chopping block and some men were scholarly, were somehow shaping the Bible as we know it. No, it's inspired by God himself. I mean, if that's not ridiculous to hear about the Gospel of Thomas possibly being in the Bible, I don't know what is. So not only is the Bible inspired by God, not only is it inerrant, but your third blank there says the Bible is infallible. It is infallible. Infallibility means unable to mislead, not liable to fail. Infallibility means that the Bible will always accomplish its purpose. The Bible is internally non-contradictory and doctrinally consistent. It will accomplish what it says it will accomplish. How about Isaiah 55, 10, and 11? For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I sent it for, and shall succeed, it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. What a great passage, just to remind us, God gives us his word, it does not return to us void. It will accomplish exactly what God said it would accomplish. The word of God simply cannot fail. Every word will come true. Every promise is secure. Every prophecy will be confirmed. Everything about the word of God is trustworthy. I love what Charles Haddon Spurgeon, great preacher from England, had to say about inerrancy, he said, or infallibility, rather. He said this, quote, If I did not believe in the infallibility of Scripture, then I would never enter the pulpit again. I mean, can you imagine if parts of the Bible didn't come true, and you're up giving your life to preaching the truth of the Bible, and yet it never comes into fruition? And so we understand that everything in the Bible, it may not happen in our lifetime, obviously. There's prophecies about the end times and, and uh, so forth and so on of, of the, the rapture, if you believe in that, uh, that uh, end time event, the second coming, which we certainly all believe in. There's a tribulation. There's the, the millennial kingdom, on and on and on. Those things may not all happen in our lifetime, right? But we believe that everything that the Bible says will come true. It is inspired, the Bible is inerrant, it is infallible, and it leads, that leads us to the fact that the Bible is also, here's number four, that it is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient. To say that the scriptures are sufficient means that the Bible is all we need to equip us for a life of faith and service. It provides a clear demonstration of God's intention to restore the broken relationship between himself and humanity through his Son. Jesus Christ, our Savior, all by the gift of faith. Necessary for this good news to be understood, and no other writings are necessary or required to equip us 
for a life of faith. We could read it from 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So what we're reading here is that through the word of God, we have everything that we need for life and for godliness. We have everything we need for salvation and for sanctification. We have everything we need to know about God and everything we need to know about what God wants us to know and how we live. We don't need further revelation. We don't need any scientific discovery. We don't need any psychologist telling us why we do what we do. We need to come to the Bible as it describes the glories of heaven and heart. And the best news of all is that the Bible gives us the answers to life's biggest questions. Like, who am I? And why am I here? And what is life all about? We're saying the Bible is sufficient to tell us the answers to all of those questions, that God answers all of those questions for us through his word, which is inspired by him, which is without any error, which will never fail us, which is sufficient for all that we need for life and for godliness. And so now that we've seen that the Bible is from God, let's look at our second truth about the Bible. That ought to be enough, by the way. We could just close in prayer if you want to leave a little early, and you're like, Adam, I got it done. I'm going to read the Bible this year. Can we please go? I'm happy to leave. But if you're not convinced, look at number two. The Bible impacts your life. It impacts your life. It's not just from God. It's from God for a reason, and that reason is to have an impact on your life. I told you we'll come back and explain 2 Timothy 3.16 in a little more detail, so let's look at that here. The Bible is God's Word that teaches, your next blank, God's Word that teaches the mind. You see there in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture breathed out by God, profitable for what? Four things. The first one, teaching. The Bible teaches your mind. Here's how Romans 12, 2 says it. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you think that happens? It happens through the word of God. As God instructs you, your mind cannot be renewed by taking medication. Your mind cannot be renewed by modern psychology. Can you tell I don't like secular psychology? I don't know if you picked that up yet, but uh, I'm not a fan because it's not God's wisdom. It's man's wisdom, and it'll never save your soul, and it'll never change your life, but God's Word will. You don't need medication or psychology to change your mind. I'm all for taking medication as a freedom. Before I get into much trouble here, if you're on medication, you want to take medication as a freedom in Christ, I say take it. Who knows, I may take some medication one day. When I start to get a little crazy, give me some medication. Maybe I'll take some. All I'm saying is that it doesn't change the heart. Right? It doesn't really change your soul. might help you think a little more clearly. might give you a reprieve from a difficult, dark time in life. So I'm all for medication. I'm just trying to make the point it will not save your soul. It will not change your life. What you need is the Word of God to teach your mind how you can think upon God and his word and be renewed in the inner man. It takes time and meditate it on to renew your mind. And we are to set our mind on things above, Colossians 3.1, where Christ is. For crying out loud, we don't need more 
horizontal therapy. We need vertical therapy. We need to set our minds on God and his glory and his word that supersedes everything else. We need to be meditating on the attributes of God. God's word instructs our minds to know God's truth. God's word teaches the mind, but it also, B, says God's word reproves the sinner. To reprove means to rebuke. That's not politically correct in our culture, is it? To rebuke somebody. Sounds like some, you know, fire preacher preaching hellfire and brimstone and just all of a sudden rebuking everybody all the time. Well, the Bible does call us to rebuke the one who to rebuke is in order to convict of misbehavior or false beliefs. We ought to be rebuking each other in love and in the right attitude. So yes, you have my permission to go home this afternoon and say it and say, Pastor Tyson says we're to rebuke each other. So don't be so quick to be like, don't judge me. Just say, no, 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 the pastor said we got to rebuke. And why does the pastor say that? Because that's what the Bible says. We're to be a people who in love would rebuke one another at home, that we would rebuke each other in our families, that we would rebuke one another in this church, that you would rebuke any other person who claims to have a relationship with God if they're living in, uh, in, in sin or if they're holding on to false doctrine, they are to be rebuked. And if it's not going to be done by you, then it's going to be. This is why the Bible tells us, 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying walk around and just rebuke everybody all day, every day. I rebuke you. I rebuke you. And I rebuke you. That goes for you too. That's part of what we do in a better attitude, right? In a, in a more kind, gracious way. But not only are we rebuking, but what else are we doing? We are, your next blank says, we're correcting. The word of God corrects the fallen. It corrects us. Let me make sure you understand this word of correction. In secular Greek literature, this word for correction is used to describe setting up an object after it has fallen over. So the rebuking is sometimes you need to topple something over because it's not true and it's not right. Correcting is now we're going to set it back up. The word even carries the idea of setting something straight after it is broken, like a doctor setting a bone. It's not good enough just to diagnose the problem. You have to fix the problem. Aren't you glad we have doctors who say, hey, your bone's broken? And you're like, well, what do we do now, doctor? And he's like, I don't know. It's just broke. Don't you want him to say, hey, and I'm going to give you some morphine, and I'm going to straighten it out, or even better, I'm going to put you under, and we're going to have to do an operation, but we're going to straighten that leg out. Why? Because we want you to walk for the rest of your life. We don't want you walking with a limp. The word correction here is a beautiful thing. Thank God that we have a scripture that will correct our souls. What good would it be to take a test if it never got graded or corrected? How will the student ever learn whether or not he gave the right answer or not? Right? We need constant correction. You could even think of this as training one of your kids how to ride a bike while they're on the bike. It's not best to rebuke them all the time. 
but rather to just gentle correction. Hey, a little bit left, a little bit right, a little bit left, a little bit right, a little left, right, right, right. Watch out for that car. You know, I mean, it's like you got to do constant correction. It's just constant. It's just how we live. It's the spirit of Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. And a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. So God's word teaches, God's word reproves, God's word corrects, and God's word trains. It trains the righteous. The connotation here is of the rearing of a child throughout life. This requires gentle, consistent instruction with much love and great patience particularly when you have toddlers at home, right? It's, again, just like the training of constantly telling them what God's word says, what their heart and attitude is showing right in that moment, and how they can seek God's help. It's training up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. It's Ephesians 6.4, bringing them up under the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's Hebrews 12.11, for at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Aren't you thankful that we can be trained by the Word of God. And we need that Word of God, right? Day in and day out. You never outgrow the Scripture's training effect. You are never to go out and try to live the Christian life on your own. You're always being trained by God's Word, no matter how big you are, no matter how smart you are, no matter how old you are. We are all in constant need and in constant dependence of the Word of God to complete us and to equip us for every good work. A third truth about the Bible that I want us to see this morning, number three, the Bible must be understood correctly. It must be understood correctly. Three things to remember when studying our Bible. Number one, observation. Your next blank, observation. When you're reading the Bible, this is the first step that you would learn in any Bible class about how to study your Bible. You just kind of observe what does the text say? What is it saying? We get a little bit of this idea from Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. For Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord. So he spent time studying it, making observations about it so that he could do it and then teach his statutes and rules in Israel. When you're making observations about scripture that you're studying, you're asking questions. You're asking questions like, who's writing? Who are they writing to? Where is this taking place? What are some cultural distinctives of that setting? What was going on in world history in that moment? Why is this so important? It's a, a, good, a, a good Bible student is going to be doing what we call inductive Bible study, that you're studying it on your own. And let, may I suggest that a good study Bible would be an incredible resource? If you don't have one, sell your shirt and get one, because reading the Bible with a study Bible is the first step and tool that will help you gain deeper understanding. Now, I'm not saying the study Bible, uh, the notes of the study Bible are inspired any more than the sermon is inspired, right? Only the Word of God is inspired, but it helps give information that's valuable, that can help you learn the Scripture to a deeper level. And so we're talking here about making observations. The second step in Bible study would be this, interpretation the text mean. 
So observation, what does the text say? Now we're going a little deeper. Interpretation, what does the text mean? Listen to Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8. It says, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is challenging, but you will get better in interpretation with time and with practice. The word here for giving the sense is what we talk about when we talk about expository preaching, that we are explaining the text, giving the sense of the text, and even coming to some type of conclusion about the proper interpretation of the text, which ultimately can only be grounded in your heart by God the Holy Spirit as you study the Scripture on your own, that you can come to the proper understanding, which would include things like taking into consideration the literal, grammatical, historical style, or what we call hermeneutic, of studying the Scripture. you got to take it literally. you got to understand good grammar, subjects and verbs and adjectives and, and different lexicons to help you get uh, the, 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 uh, the definition and the syntax of how it works together. And then there's the history uh, of, the, of, the, uh, of the actual events that are being examined as well. All of this together will make a good inductive Bible study or a good expository teacher. And it's not just explaining it, by the way, it's then exhorting your listener to put it into practice. We don't want just a lot of Bible heads who know everything about the Bible. We're to take that next step and exhort. So what does this mean for your life? And that gets us into our last step of Bible study, which would be application. Your next blank application. How does the text apply to my life? How will my life now be different in light of what I've learned? What principle or timeless truth from this text? Hey, I love Joshua 1.8 that gives us that sense of the importance of application. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you might be careful to do according to all that's written in it. There's the application. It's like study it, study it, meditate on it day and night. Shema, shema, shema with your kids and your children and on your house and on your gates. Why? So that, so that you might be careful to do according to all that's written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So every day as you're reading the Bible, if you're trying to grasp for application, you could just start real simple and say, how does what I read today, how will this help me love God more, and how will it help me love others more? I mean, that's the greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So I think every time you're reading scripture, you should simply pause and stop and say, hey, you know what? How will this truth of this chapter, of this verse that I just, how will this help me love God more? And then put it into practice. How will this help me love others more in the way that God calls me to? All right, let's move on. Number four, fourth truth about the Bible is the Bible points us to Jesus Christ. The Bible points us to Jesus Christ. Your next blank, what is the main point of your Bible? What is the main point of your Bible? Jesus said it best when he said to the two travelers on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, 44, Jesus said to them, these are my words that I have spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
So Jesus is saying, hey, look, I want to tell you something. Everything that was written in the Old Testament law by Moses, recorded in the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament, everything that was written in the Psalms, it's all talking about me. It's all about me. It's all about me being the redeemer of the world. So to take a Bible and to get lost in it to such a degree that you forget about Jesus is to be lost. Now, I'm not saying every single verse clearly has some type of secret Jesus message in it. I am not saying that. I am saying that holistically, the point of the Bible is to bring you into relationship with Jesus Christ. And to deny that is to deny the point of the Bible. All of this leads us to some degree to a redemptive hermeneutic of Scripture. Remember, Jesus is the Word who became flesh. So we understand that the Scripture, which is the Word, is now Christ in John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt. Book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says that he was made a minister of the gospel in order to point people to Christ. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 3, 7 and following. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which has given me, which was given me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the least of all the saints, his grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And he just goes on and on to talk about how it's all about the eternal purpose is realizing that Jesus Christ is the Lord. So the main point of our Bible is to point to the redemption of mankind, and that redemption can only happen because of the Redeemer, who is Jesus Christ. Listen to me, a Bible without Christ would be a religious book focused on works. A Bible without Christian in condemning you, but not in saving you. A Bible without Christ would tell you about the judgment of God, but it would not be able to tell you about the mercy of God. The point of your Bible is to point you to the love of God seen most clearly in Jesus Christ. To say it another way, out of all the characters in the Bible, your next blank would be this, who are you most influenced by? Who are you most influenced by when you think about the Bible? Paul says it's Jesus. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul didn't say, on the top of Mount Nebo with Moses. Paul didn't say, I've been taken up in a fiery chariot like Elijah. Paul didn't say, I've been beheaded like John the Baptist. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. Abraham did not grant us faith. David did not bring us into the kingdom. Stephen did not die for your sins, but Jesus did all of these things. Jesus gave us faith. Jesus brought us into the kingdom of light. Jesus died in our place so that you could be set free. So thank God that the person in the Bible that we want to be most influenced by is always going to be Jesus Christ. Certainly, we could also say that out of all the characters in the Bible, your next blank, who do you want to be the most like? Who do you want to be the most like? 1 John 2, 6, whoever in him ought to walk in the same way 
which he walked. The Bible not only points us to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Bible also points us to how Jesus lived. In the Bible, we see how Jesus chose and discipled the 12 apostles. We see how Jesus had compassion on the poor and the outcasts. We see how Jesus had patience with the confused. We see how Jesus confronted those filled with religious pride. We see how Jesus showed mercy to the repentant. We see how Jesus met people's needs. We see how Jesus suffered under persecution. And we see how Jesus related to his father throughout his time on earth. So what we're saying is, let's make no doubt about it, the Bible points us to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible is all about. Now the fifth and final truth about the Bible, number five, the Bible claims its own validity. Because the Word of God is inspired and inerrant and infallible and sufficient, it is invincible. The Bible is incapable of being overcome or conquered. The Bible is indestructible. It is indomitable. It is unyielding, unflinching, unbending, and unshakable. The Bible makes its own claim to its validity, and it does so not just by stating that it is the Word of God, which is inspired, inerrant, infallible, and sufficient, but it also does the same thing by painting a picture of its own power and effectiveness. Let me give you, as we close here in a couple of minutes, seven symbols of sacred scripture where the Bible shows its own supremacy. Number one is a sword that pierces. It is a sword that pierces. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirits, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the attentions of the heart. The Word of God is a sword that pierces. It is not a Q-tip that tickles. It is not a feather that floats in the wind. It is not a leaf that withers. The Bible is sharper than a scalpel. It's stronger than steel. It's more pointed than a spear. So pick up the sword and let it do its work on you. The Word of God, not only is it a sword that pierces, the second blank there says the Word of God is a mirror that is 122, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word he's not a, and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. And he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But to the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts is blessed in his doing. What are we learning in this passage? The Word of God is like a mirror. A mirror gives you self-knowledge. It enables you to see yourself as you truly are. It exposes your sin. It shows you your error. It points you to the law of liberty, which is found in Jesus Christ. Third, not only is the Word a sword and a mirror, but third, seed that germinates. 1 Peter 1.23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable 
through the living and abiding Word of God. This is a sovereign, monergistic seed of regeneration that starts as a small seed in your heart, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows in you to make you a mighty oak whose leaves will never wither, whose roots will never go dry, who will always bear fruit. Thank God that the Word of God is that seed that germinates. Fourth, the Word of God is milk that nourishes. 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Never outgrow the craving that we have for the Word of God. Milk has nutrients, it has antibodies, and it has protein. And the Bible has everything you need for life and for godliness. Drink it in. Drink in the muscle milk of God's Word and have your soul nourished and replenished. Fifth, the Word of God is a light that shines. Psalm 119, 105, your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We live in a very dark world the Word of God is a lamp giving necessary light to the sojourners traveling through. God's Word gives us enough light for the next step, and it also shines ahead toward the path of life. The light of Scripture shines brightest in the darkest places of this world. Sixth, the Word of God is a fire. Soons. Jeremiah 23, 29, is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord. The fire consumes, a fire burns up. It consumes and burns up all that is resistant to the word of God. The word of God is a consuming fire. This is a red hot book. The scriptures are sizzling. This is the hottest message the world has ever heard. And when you are called to preach or to counsel or to evangelize, you are called to proclaim the fire of God's Word. Seventh, the Word of God is a hammer that shatters. The rest of that verse in Jeremiah 23, 29 says, not only is the Word a fire, declares the Lord, it is like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. This is a picture of a hammer that pulverizes. Use the sledgehammer of God's Word. The Word of God smashes pride. The Bible scatters self-righteousness. The Scriptures shatter worldly claims into smithereens. The hammer is harder than the hardest heart. The hammer is harder than the stoniest soul. The hammer is harder than the most forged deception. And therefore, we are to wield the sword, set up the mirror, scatter the seed, serve the milk, set out the lamp, spread the fire, sling the hammer. Not just a preacher's job, that's all of our jobs as we learn to get into the Word of God. And so this sermon is aiming, remember, at motivation for you to make 2020 the year of the Bible in your life. We don't lack motivation in food. Right? Most of us around the holiday time put on a couple extra pounds. Why? Because we love holiday food. We love the way it tastes, and we also realize that if we don't eat, we'll be famished, and we'll end up dying. Well, these same two truths ought to motivate us to read Scripture. We ought to love the way the Word of God tastes. 
And we ought to realize that if we don't eat it and digest it, we will be spiritually starved. You will never find satisfaction. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So let me encourage you under this take-home section, really simple, practical way to apply this message. There the blanks are already filled in for you. Don't you love your pastor about this time in the sermon? So all I'm asking you to do is say, hey, Adam, my goodness, after hearing those verses and hearing this right here, right now, to make 2020 a year of the Bible. I confess, I've been a little bit lax in my quiet time. I confess, it's been a while since I've been consistent. The aim of this sermon is that you would maybe do these simple things. Number one, pick a time. Just every day, I mean, you got the holidays, your schedule's about to start up. All of us this week will be thinking about schedules and family and life and school and work. And it's like, you know what? I'm going to pick a time of the day, whether that's early, midday, afternoon, when you get home, before you go to bed, just pick a time where you can consistently say, I'm going to give it 10 minutes. Lord, I got, I got 10 minutes. I can give you 10 minutes, Lord. I'm going to spend 10 minutes every day in your word. Pick a time. I would suggest picking a place. Same place is a lot of times helpful. It doesn't have to be but maybe there's a special chair in your house. Maybe it's by the foot of your bed. Maybe it's in your study. Maybe it is at work or at a certain Starbucks. I don't know, but I'm just saying pick a place where you know when you get to that place, you can focus uninterrupted to study the Word of God. Here's my next suggestion to you. Pick a book of the Bible. We've got lots of reading plans. Some of them are in the bulletin. You can look through it later. We have different resources online that we're recommending. There's thousands of them out there, but in your bulletin on the second page, about halfway down, are some resources that you could say, you know what, here's the plan that I'm going to try to do this year. I'm saying if you don't have a plan, just pick a book of the Bible. There's 66 of them. Just pick one and just say, I'm going to read through this book, and I'm going to read a chapter a day, and I'm going to take about five, ten minutes and read that chapter, and then as you're reading through it, your next blank there that's filled in for you says, pick a verse to meditate on. As you read through 10, 15, 20, 25 verses, then just maybe pick one verse that you say, you know what, that verse just grabbed me, that, it grabbed my attention, it convicted my soul, it encouraged my life, it was something I haven't seen before or I haven't seen in a long time. I'm going to meditate on that verse throughout this day. I'm going to think about how that verse will help me love God and love others. I'm going to, next blank, pick a person to share God's truth with. My encouragement to you is whatever that verse was that really encouraged you, share that with your wife. Share that with your husband. Share that with your children. Share it with a coworker. Oh, I've just been meditating on this verse. I've been thinking about this verse all day. Let me share it with you. What an encouraging way to make 2020 a year of the Bible. Don't disappoint me. All right, I want us as a church to be people who are in the Word of God. And you're not doing it for me. Of course, I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm trying to motivate you and help you see the infinite value out of here. And you would run to your house and like, family, let's do it. Let's get in the Word of God. Let's be a family that makes the decade of 2020 a decade of reading the Bible. May God help us as we want to get into His Word. Join me in prayer, if you will. Father, thank you so much for this morning and the opportunity to be reminded of these great truths of the Bible. I pray that what we've seen, what we've studied, would just motivate us, help us. It would encourage us, Lord, that we couldn't resist 
that we wouldn't want to skip times with you, that we wouldn't want to try to see how we could cut down and spend less time with you, but rather we would want to see, you know, how could we make some more margin in our schedule for reading and studying and memorizing? I didn't even get to get to praying through Scripture. So many things that we want to value in our time in your word that would grow us, change us, and allow us to be the kind of godly men and women, boys and girls. Thank you for this reminder. Help us to put it into practice out of a heart of worship, a heart of hunger, and a heart of conviction to spend time with you like never before. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.